invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 41 through 44, there in Mark chapter 12. So Mark 12, 41 to 44. As you turn there, I want to let you know that as we go to Mark 1241, we're actually going to hit the rewind button just for a second or just for a moment on this final Tuesday of Jesus's life. If you're new with us, we've been working through the life of Jesus for a really long time. And we're on the final Tuesday before his crucifixion. Tuesday is a really long day. <laughs> it's longer than any other day recorded for us in those last few days of Jesus's life. So far, we've seen him talk about a fig tree. We've, talk, we've heard him talk about moving mountains. We have seen him confront the Sanhedrin, pronouncing all those woe to you hypocrites, to the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders there in the temple. And then last week, we saw him after he got into that verbal fight, with the Sanhedrin, leaving the temple. That's where we left you last week. He was leaving the temple, and he was saying, every one of these stones will not be left upon the other. This temple is going to be destroyed. That's where we got last week. Now we're going to have a little flashback. We're going backwards. Right after he confronts the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and before he walks out of the temple for the last time, is when this event that we're about to read occurs, okay? Matthew didn't include it. We were in Matthew 23 last week. Matthew didn't include it for whatever reason, but Mark does. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. So now that you know where we're at in the life of Jesus, let's pray and we will begin our look. Father, we pray once again, Ephesians 1, may you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may see Jesus, the one who has been raised from the dead and is now seated at your right hand. Help us to see and believe in Christ. Amen. Well, this is the word of God beginning in verse 41. And he, that's Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Real quick, he's in the temple, remember? Just got done telling you that. He's in the court of the women. In the court of the women, it's a little misleading. Both men and women were allowed in the court of the women. It's the farthest end of the temple. The women were allowed to go. There's no one besides Jews, though, in the court of the women. The court of the, the Gentiles is outside of this. So Jesus sits down in the court of the women, and he's watching people put things into the offering plates except they weren't offering plates. They took the shells of ram's horns, and they, I don't know how they affixed them, 
duct tape to boxes. And those horns were wide at the bottom, and they kind of circled around, and they were narrow at the top. And so people would put their coins into the ram's horn, and it would go down, drop into the box. But the reason they would do it like that is so people couldn't reach in and steal, because it was narrow at the top. So I think there were 12 or 13 of these, and each different box was designated for different reasons. That's not important because it doesn't tell us which box she puts it in, but we'll, or what these people are putting it in. Look at verse 41 again. He sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. That's what's going on. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I don't know about you, but when I read through the Gospels, and I know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke basically tell the same story, and I know that we just got done reading the part in Matthew about Jesus getting into the fight with the Sanhedrin, and then he, Jesus walks out of the temple, I scratch my head and I go, huh, why didn't Matthew include this section about the widow? And so that's our opening question this morning. Why does Mark include this story? Why is it here? We're going to answer that question, but you know me, we're going to take the scenic route to do it. As a matter of fact, I'm about to talk to you about stuff that has nothing to do with the story, at least it doesn't seem, but it will. A major theme that we have seen in Mark, in all the Gospels, but especially Mark, is discipleship, following Jesus. Men and women leaving everything to follow Jesus. It starts off that way. Mark chapter 1. After Mark talks about John the Baptist and Jesus gets baptized, the first thing we see Jesus doing is calling four men to follow him. And that's when they drop their nets leave their jobs, James and John leave their dad, and they go follow Jesus, discipleship. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. And so Levi leaves his lucrative business, his tax booth, and he follows Jesus. He becomes a disciple. In Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus calling six more men to leave and follow everything. Follow everything. Follow him. Leave everything. Follow him. That's how he gets his 12 disciples. Fast forward the tape a little bit to Mark chapter 6, verse 8. Jesus sends those disciples out to minister. And he very specifically tells them to go out on their multi-day missions trip with no bread 
no bag, no money. He doesn't even allow them to take an extra coat in case they get cold. All they're allowed to take with them is a walking stick. It's a taste of what life would soon be like. Following Jesus, even though Jesus can't be seen, isn't present with them, and they possessed very little. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells those same disciples, those same 12 disciples, along with a huge crowd that had amassed, that if anyone would want to follow him, if anyone wants to be his disciple, well, then they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for his sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit if a man gains the whole world? If a man has access and can enjoy every treasure on earth, what does it profit him if he's got all that at his fingertips, but he loses his soul? You turn another chapter, Mark chapter 9, verse 35. He tells this 12, because they're arguing about who's going to be great. And he says, look, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last. Who likes being last? Especially in the dessert line. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. We're talking about free men, free people choosing to come in last. And be a servant of everybody else. In Mark chapter 10, the very next chapter, Jesus tells the rich young ruler. And remember, the rich young ruler, he's a guy who really worked hard at trying to obey the Ten Commandments. Jesus started spatting off the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, hey, I've done all those, Jesus, since I was young. And then Jesus looks at him. He says, well, you lack one thing. Go, sell everything. All that you have. Give it to the poor, store up treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. A few verses later, same chapter, Mark 10. Jesus tells his disciple, to his disciples, there's no one who has left, listen to this, there's nobody who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's sake that will not receive a hundredfold. Now, what we usually do when we read that passage is we think about, oh, someday I'm going to get a lot more than I have right now. What I want you to hear right now is this. People are out there leaving their house, their brothers and sisters, their moms, their dads, their kids, their countries, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. Church, as we've looked at Jesus in the gospel of Mark, we have found that he is crystal clear when he explains to us what it takes to be a follower of him. 
We let go. We let go of the world's treasures to make room for him. And heaven's treasures. But you see the Sanhedrin at the temple. They lost sight of this. This is one of the reasons Jesus is so upset with these guys. They had turned the temple, the place that's supposed to be a reflection of the glory of God, people giving their best to God, and then God taking care of them, blessing them. They've taken that temple and they've perverted it. They've turned it, as Jesus said, into a den of robbers. So rather than givers, they were takers. They had these opportunities to be conduits, vessels, to bless the people of God. But rather than blessing them, they put a noose around their neck, so to speak. And we're choking the spiritual life of them, out of them. We learned last week, they were making them twice the sons of hell, the people of God, twice the sons of hell as they were. Total perversion of what should have been happening. And to be fair, to be fair, the temple, it was set up to be something that's beautiful and glorious. It was supposed to have all the best. Why? Because the best reflects God. It was supposed to be a place where the people came and they offered their best to God. Why? Because he's worthy. And you've got these people, the Levites, that were in charge of the temple. Like God didn't give them land like he did the other 11 tribes. Instead, they gave them the priests, the priests, the Levites, the temple. And you're supposed to lead people in the worship there in the temple. And those priests were the ones that got to enjoy the offerings. They got to eat the meat from the, the cows that were sacrificed. They had the lamb chops after the lambs were done, right? They drank the drink offerings. They ate the bread from all the grain offerings. That's the way God set it up. That was good, right? They wanted to, you don't muzzle the ox while it's working. They got greedy. Oh, they got greedy. This place that was supposed to be a temple of communion for the nations with God is now a den of thieves. How else can you explain a poor widow who only has two copper coins to her name. How else can you explain her walking in to this temple and having to give her last two coins to those greedy priests? How in the world did things in Israel get turned so upside down that the religious leaders would allow a woman like this to even get in this predicament. The storehouses in the temple are full. Their bellies, the priest's bellies, the scribes' bellies are full. She's got a penny. And they take it. That is not what God is about at all. 
Time and time again as we read through the Old Testament, it's all about doing justice for these widows, taking care of these widows. When James, in James chapter 1, when he says pure and faultless religion is this in the sight of God the Father, to take care of orphans and widows in their distress, that wasn't new. That is a summary of the Old Testament procedure for widows. But that's not what's happening here. And it's gross. This is precisely one of the reasons Jesus just fought with the Sanhedrin, the leaders there, the religious leaders in the temple. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, for you devour widows' houses. Shame on them. Shame on them. But I'm going to tell you, if we focus on that, we miss the point of the story. I, do, I did want, I wanted to show you what a great injustice that was. Let's move on. This woman, this beautiful, impoverished, lonely widow, she embodies what Jesus has taught us about discipleship time and time again. That's why I talked about discipleship at the beginning of the sermon. This begins to answer our question, why does Mark include this story? Why does he include this story about the widow? Why does he include this, this scene where Jesus points out this widow who gives away everything she has to live on as an offering to God? She's an illustration, guys. She's an illustration like a fig tree. She's an illustration of what discipleship looks like. Disciples of Jesus, we let go of the things of this earth to make room to trust God with our lives. We don't trust in the things of this world, we trust him. Let's talk about this widow for a little bit. Why is she in severe poverty? No idea. Did she make bad choices? Maybe. Did her husband die? Apparently. Where are her kids? Aren't kids supposed to take care of their parents, especially widows? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what Paul told Timothy. In the context of taking care of widows, he said that if a person doesn't take care of somebody in his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. Is that why she's poor? Maybe. Maybe her kids are dead. Maybe she didn't have kids. We 
don't know why she's in such severe poverty. What we do know is she has two copper coins for the grand total of one penny. Church, that is poor. What we often lose sight of is we read this book and we forget this isn't pretend. This is a real woman in real poverty offering her last penny to God. That's an incredible woman. This past week I listened to a couple of different guys preach on this text, on this event. The one preacher, he scolded this widow for giving away her last penny. He asked, why would she do such a thing? Why doesn't she go buy a loaf of bread or something? He brought up the, the, the parable of the talents and he suggested that she could have at least went and put the penny in the bank and collected interest on it. That would have been real successful. Church, Jesus is not pointing out this woman's poor financial decision here. He's commending her. Look at verse 43. It says, and he called his disciples to him. That word, the Greek word called, it's not, he didn't pick up his cell phone. That's what comes to our minds. We say, oh, I called so-and-so. No, when it says that he called his disciples, he summoned him. Guys, come here. Come here. Take a look at this. You've got to see this. And then the verse says, and he said to them, truly, the words, amen, this is beautiful. Amen, lego, in the Greek, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they, they all contributed out of their abundance didn't cost them much. They contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Who lives like this? Who does such a thing? Who's crazy enough to give up the one thing that could help. <laughs> and trust God with their future. Who in their right mind would give and give and give to the point that they couldn't give anymore? Besides the widow and Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake he became what, church? Poor. Jesus chose to become poor for your sake. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it tells us that he emptied himself. He didn't empty his wallet. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And while he was on the cross, giving not his last penny, but giving his last breath, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 tells us that he kept entrusting himself he just kept trusting in the father jesus gave everything trusting in the father do you want to know why jesus sits down in the court of the women takes note calls his disciples over it shows them, points out this woman, this woman. It's because she is a picture of him. She is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Write that down if you're taking notes. Look it up later. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. I'm going to read it for you in a second. I want you to hear this loud and clear. This widow, she is living out 2 Corinthians 4, 10 and 11. This widow, as she does this, is manifesting in her body, the life, the love, the sacrifice of Jesus. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. Paul says this. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Pause. Paul, why? Paul, why? Paul, you had a good life. Paul, you were well-respected. You were a Pharisee yourself. You got to walk and rule those temple courts. You benefited from all of these offerings. Why would you walk away from such a good life, Paul? Why would you walk away to be afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying around in your body the death of Jesus? Why? Well, he answers... So that the life of Jesus may 
be manifested in our bodies. Do you know what that means? So that Jesus in the life that he lived, though he's not here visibly on planet earth, his life is made known, it's present, it's manifested in our physical bodies for other people to see. That's what he's saying. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Then he says it again. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, visible, seen in the life in our, in our mortal flesh. Church. This is what we do as Christians. This is what we do as followers of Jesus. We make decisions, we make choices that would make absolutely no sense if Jesus isn't God and if we're not going to be raised from the dead. We make choices that don't make sense to anybody unless they know him. Why? Why? So that in those choices to suffer and serve and give and worship, Jesus is made manifest. So he is made visible through us so that other people can see him and believe in him and make the same crazy choices as us. What? Yes! This is why people drop their nets. It's why they leave their dads. It's why they live the lucrative tax booth and deny themselves and take up their cross and sell everything and give the proceeds to the poor and give away their last two copper coins. We found something better. Better. And his name is Jesus. Is this guy serious? Yes. We are sold time and time again a powerless religion named Christianity. Christianity is true, but what's being sold out there is so much less than what Jesus offers us. He's not about making life better here and now, though he makes our lives better here and now. It's like the greatest oxymoron. You say, Jeff... You sound like a radical. No, I sound like the New Testament. Read it. Second, all right, so Jesus dies on Friday, Sunday. He's raised from the dead. A few weeks later, Jesus ascends to heaven. He tells the guys, you're going to be my witnesses. The first place their witness is Jerusalem. They go and preach Jesus in Jerusalem. The people hear it. They hear it. They're struck to the heart. They say, brothers, what should we do? They say, repent and be baptized. 
in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we get this snapshot of what those early Christians do, starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through the end of the chapter. In verse 45, it tells us they were all selling their possessions. They were selling their belongings to do what? To give the proceeds to anybody that has need. They give like Jesus. They give like the widow. It's why Paul, as he's given his testimony, he says, I count all that was gained as trash for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Philippians 3. It's why we have the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Churches made, churches there in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Churches that were ridiculously poor. What do we see them doing? Giving. Giving out of their poverty. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8, chapters 2 through 4. For in a severe test of affliction, boy, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? A severe test of affliction. There, these churches, these Christians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. That combination of the joy of knowing Jesus and their extreme poverty on this earth combine to overflow in a wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us, begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part of the relief in the saints. They're poor, begging Paul to give their money what they do have to help other people. Who does that? Jesus and his people. That's who does that. Now, am I telling you that you have to leave here and give all your stuff away. No, <laughs> no, no. But I will remind you of this. First John 2, 3, and 6. This is how we know, this is how we know if we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. Listen. The sermon's progressing here. I'm taking a left turn. Okay? The love of God is perfected. John's saying we, come to, we, we know that we know him if we obey his commandments. And if we obey his commandments, the love of God is perfected. It's perfected in us. What is he getting at? What is he talking about? I'm going to explain it. All of this is connected. It's going to come around in the end. Follow me. It's worth it. 
Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the true, the, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Who's him? Jesus. This is how we know we are connected to the vine. This is how we know that our water baptism is true. Whoever says he abides is connected, lives in, dwells with Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. The way that you know that you know God The way you reveal to yourself and to everybody else that you know Jesus, that you abide in Jesus, is through love. Love? How did you get on love, Pastor? Well, John brought it up. Stay with me. I thought we were talking about the widow. We are. Love. Listen. What is love? Love, according to the gospel, and you've heard me say this before, is warm-hearted affection that willingly sacrifices, that willingly gives, here's the widow, that willingly gives for the benefit, blessing, and good of others. especially those who don't deserve it. That is gospel love. That is John 3.16. Love, warm-hearted affection that willingly, man, we could take the Macedonian church that joyfully sacrifices, willingly gives for the benefit, blessing, and good, especially for those who don't deserve it. And maybe we could even add, out of our own poverty. Is your life marked by that kind of love? By this, we know if we have come to know him. If your life is marked with that kind of love, it's because you have experienced and come to know and trust in his love. Why? 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. But if your life is not marked by that kind of love, there is a good chance that you do not know him. Oh, you sound like a legalist, Pastor. No, I sound like the Bible. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves knows God. But... 
anyone who does not love does not know God. God is love. So let me explain how all this ties together and how I'm not just out here like preaching to you some law and you need to go sell everything you have. Keep what you got. I don't care. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad attitude. <laughs> that really was. This is, let me explain to you how this is not law, but God transforms it into gospel. When we experience the love of God, what do I mean by that? When you see Jesus, when you see the life of Jesus, when you see the death of Jesus, when you see that Jesus, the perfect son of God, came from the riches of heaven and, and emptied himself and made himself poor for your sake so that you could go behind enemy lines and rescue as an enemy and save you and breathe spiritual life into you and not just give you life, but then give you everything he possesses for eternity and he calls you brother and you're now part of the family of God, your royalty. When you begin to see that, when you begin to believe that, not just with your mouth, not just some sort of mental ascent, oh yeah, I believe in all that. When you know, when you believe in the love of God and you stand under the waterfall, enjoying that love. That love transforms the command to love God and to love everybody else. It transforms that command to sacrifice for others and to give all your stuff away for their benefit, blessing, and good. It transforms that from a law, and I'm gonna sound like a cliche preacher, just give me a minute. It transforms that from a law, from a burden, from a have to, to a get to. I don't have to give anything away because God gave himself for me. And he has paid all of my debts. I don't have to give anything away. As a matter of fact, I don't have to love. I don't have to sacrifice large amounts of my time or my money or my energy. But guess what? I get to, and I don't mean that in some weird, oh, he's spinning it kind of a way. I can't help myself. Because I've tasted of his love. And when you taste it, you can't help but want more and to give it and to give it and to give it. Because in those moments of giving and becoming like Jesus and living like Jesus, in those moments, I get to experience him. I get to see him work in me. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees, the temple workers, were missing out on. They saw this system and thought, oh, I can take, take, take. This is good, good, good. I'll just fill up my barns and I'll be able to eat lamb for the rest of my life. Yes, yes, yes. Give me your money, widow. No. 
they shortchanged themselves. Every moment you sit there and you feed your flesh rather than wage war against it and allow the spirit who's in opposition to the flesh to win out. Every time you feed that flesh, you shortchange yourself so much. Every time I try to be funny, try to win the laugh, every time I see something at Shields, I'm like, oh, I'm going to save my money. I'm going to buy that. Every time I sit down and I'm self-indulgent, I eat two meatball sandwiches instead of one. I eat my kids' Oreos instead of my apples. I'm being silly, but every time, every time, I choose the world and the flesh and feed this rather than choose Jesus. I miss a chance to experience him and know him. Every time I decide to sleep in or every time I decide to work on my sermon instead of spending time with him before I get to the sermon, every time I try to shortcut, I shortcut myself an opportunity with fellowship with him. And then what happens is I walk throughout my day and I start interacting with people and suddenly I don't have anything to give because I haven't been with Jesus. And I, at the end of the day, am depressed. But those days, those moments. Stop yawning. This isn't boring. This is the source of life. When you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow Christ, and rather than being selfish, you put him on display. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 8. You manifest yourself in those moments. Jesus works in you. And those words fall so flat because there is nothing better in life than when God takes something that is dead sinful and broken and he mends it in a moment to put Jesus on display and suddenly you're not sacrificing anything it's all gain and out of the abundance of overflowing joy you give and when you taste that you can't Stop, and you'll come to a room like this and you'll say, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. And so Jesus says, hey guys, come look at the widow. She gets it. She gets it. Do you? Oh, I want you to get it. Get it. Let's pray. God, give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened and we might see Christ.
that we would behold him in such a way that he manifests himself through us. And we'll finally discover what this life is all about. And people can see the light and the glory of Christ in us. And you'll save your people. And then one day we're all gonna get together in your kingdom and see you for how you really are. And then, and finally, then, we'll be just like you. Would you please help us to know this? Help us to taste this. We are spiritually dead. We need you to do this. Without you, Lord, we're without hope. So make it happen. Amen.